Welcome. I'm Laura Lee Benstock, host of a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. It's hard to believe that it's been nearly 20 years since 9-11 happened in New York City. I still remember what I was doing the moment the second plane hit the Twin Towers. I was in French class in my junior year of high school and an announcement was made over the loudspeaker that a plane had hit the Twin Towers. You know, at that point, no one mentioned it was a terrorist attack. No one knew the gravity of what had happened and my classmates wanted to turn on the TV and I just specifically my my French teacher was just everybody quiet down and one of the students was like, no, we need to turn on the TV and he turned on the TV and as he turned on the TV, the second plane hit and we saw it in real time and everyone just gasped. You know, I was all the way in, in Jacksonville, you know, these traumatic events become imprinted in our minds. Some choose to forget, especially if it directly affects them. But if an event can affect someone who's a thousand miles away and just be ingrained in that person's mind, what what can that do to someone who is directly affected? And what about the people who grow to love them, the ones who experience secondary trauma? Joining me today is Peyton Lynch, author of the recently released book, Rise from the Ashes, Stories of Trauma, Resilience, and growth from the children of 9-11. Peyton, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Laura Lee. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, your, your book, Rise from the Ashes, is a compilation of stories of the children of 9-11 victims. What inspired you to write it? Sure. And so just listening to you share your story of where you were at 9-11, um, you know, I have those same moments of my own of where I was. And so, you know, of course, as an American, 9-11 has a certain um, heaviness and a weight mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until I met my now husband that I understood the uh, personal impact it could have when you narrow down, you know, 3000 lives, which sounds so enormous to mm -hmm. one singular life who touched other people and, you know, including my husband. And so, um, you know, my, my husband and I, we've been married almost six years and, uh, about nine years ago or so when we just started dating, um, it was summer loving and, uh, it, that September rolled around. It was our, our first September together. And I did not know that this was a part of his story. Um, we're from Pennsylvania. And so even being that close to New York city, I really didn't know anyone else who was um, personally impacted. Mm -hmm. And um, so he took me out to dinner that night at a, at a bonefish grill. <laughs> and I just thought it was another normal night, another date night. And he started to open up um, at the dinner table about his story. And um, he shared that his Father, Robert Henry Lynch Jr., was a property manager of Two World Trade and um, was there on the day of 9-11. He actually was outside of the building and called home. And uh, in fact, it's still on tape um, to this day and 2001 technology. So it's on like a giant, you know, recorder cassette. Um, but he 
said that he was safe, that things were crazy, but he would call them as soon as he could and that he loved them. And I always think, are they, you know, what goes through my family's mind of, do they wish they had picked up? Are they grateful to have the call? Like, you know, you don't win, right? Because at the end of the day, you don't have your dad anymore because he did not um, call back, unfortunately, because he went back into the building and he um, did save people's lives that day. He was um, found escorting people out and uh, he was recognized with a medal of valor um, presented to him, well, uh, to presented to his family at the White House uh, in the years to follow. And it's an incredible honor, you know, and he was a civilian, um, you know, it was not a part of his call of duty to um, be there and help others, but yet there are specific people who have been able to go to my husband and his siblings and his stepmother and say, you know, your dad saved my life or your dad saved this person's life. And um, I was so glad that the restaurant was very dimly lit because <laughs> I was really struggling to keep it together. I couldn't, I think what amazed me the most was this person, this was someone I love um, and I am biased, but I think he's the most caring, generous, you know, kind person I've ever met. And all I could think was, if this were me, I don't know that I would be the way he is. Um, if this were my life and my story, I think I would be angry. I mean, I just think, how could you not? You lost your parent in a, a national tragedy. Um, and so that always lay dormant for me, right? That like, no matter what, my husband has found a way to keep going and be resilient and find the joy in his life. And it didn't really resonate until this past year. I think, you know, 2020 brought all of its joyous challenges with the pandemic. Right. Um, you know, he was laid off. We were both Walt Disney World cast members and uh, he oh, was... Wow laid off um, because of the pandemic. I went to full-time working from home um, and we were also in the midst of and continue to be in the midst of a battle with infertility. And for me personally, this has been my first biggest life challenge. I'm very fortunate that I didn't have a, you know, a childhood impact of that, certainly of that magnitude, right? Um, and, and yet I started to recognize that there's something about my husband because of what happened to him that has better equipped him for what we're going through now. And at first I used to be so mad. I was like, John, just be mad with me. Just tell me it sucks, you know, because it does suck. I mean, you know, infertility is not fun. Um, and it's not that he's not upset, but he just, he's like, honey, I've, I've already been through hell. I can, we can get through this. You know, he can see the arc that there is another side to it. And I, I was like, all right, I, I need this for myself. I need to learn um, what it is, what that difference is, how do we build resilience? And I started reaching out to other folks in the 9-11 um, community, specifically folks who lost parents to see what their journeys were. And um, I just... I knew that the conversations would be impactful. I just never imagined the impact they would have on me and that it would turn into this, this project that's now a book 
um, about you know what they were all all able to do, but also to show others what they are able to do with their own circumstances. So it has been a journey, and I I just. I can't wait for folks to be able to sink their teeth into the book and, and see all the insights that they have to share. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I was, I'm, I, I'm, I started getting really emotional there. Cause I just, when I think about what I felt like I put myself in your shoes with your husband telling you exactly what happened, because just that story alone, that his father called and said, mm-hmm. everything's okay. I feel like that would be devastating for me at the end of the day, be like, okay, you know, don't, you know, dad's okay. Um, And then you find out differently, but it must have been truly inspiring for him that his, his, his father did so much in those last moments. You know, we just did, um, he just did an interview the other day and besides for this book and the casual conversations we've had as a married couple, I never until the other day had an opportunity to hear him speak publicly about this. And the person asked him if he was ever angry or upset that his dad went back inside. And he said, of course, I would love to have my dad back, but that's not who my dad was. And there are people who are alive who need to had something left that they needed to do that are alive because of my dad. And I was sitting outside of this office door on the floor because I, I, I wanted to hear the interview. And I had to like cover my mouth because I was like, this interview is going to hear some crazy woman <laughs> sobbing yeah. outside. But to have that perspective and it is it is truly that is the core of who he is. That is the core of what he, he believes that truth. Um, it's not for show. And I was like, that, that to me is an incredible um, example of the arc of his journey. Um, because I, I know that wasn't always his feeling on the matter, understandably. So, oh, wow. Yes, that is, that's very impactful. And inspiring him. Excuse me. <laughs> did your husband struggle with PTSD from that event? And if he did, did he realize it was PTSD from this? Event? I think it did take a lot of uncovering and I, and we're still uncovering now. Um, in fact, we're in therapy for fertility, but you know, you never just go in and just talk about whatever that one topic is. And these things start to come out and they emerge of like what your inner child was sort of holding on to. And what we have been discovering and walking through um, was that there were some pretty painful things that were said to him in the years following 9-11 because, you know, 9-11 itself was traumatic, right? He watched it on TV in school. He was the only kid in his classroom or in his whole school who lost a parent that day. And so, you know, that, that actual time was so traumatic. But then it's like you had the support of so many friends and family during that time. And then it was like two to three years later, everyone sort of fell off, right? Because the rest of the United States sort of started to move on. Mm -hmm. Um, But he had a guidance counselor actually tell him that for like months after 9-11 that his dad could still be alive in an air pocket. He had people tell him that, you know, oh, well, some people, they could have just picked up and started new lives because, you know, they're missing and no body was recovered. Right. So 
um, you're left with this, then this questioning of would my dad ever do that? Like, you know, what a horrible thing to tell a child. Um, plus the conspiracy theories around 9-11. I mean, it is not a private event at all. And the biggest thing that he continues to carry with him, I would say there's two things. The first would be, he does have dreams about the buildings. Um, and they are not of the burning buildings. And we've done a lot to remove ourselves from social media and places where we're going to see that during September mm-hmm. to avoid some of that. Um, but he has very vivid memories of walking through the buildings. Um, he like, he could tell you what the color of the carpet was and how squishy it was. Um, and so that continues to sort of play on loop every once in a while, it will reemerge. And then the second thing is um, that he still holds on to, he was 13 at the time, he had an older sister in college, and then three younger siblings, um, all of which don't remember their dad because they were five and younger. Um, And he went to camp uh, either that summer, a few summers after for kids who lost a parent in 9-11. And there was an activity where you tied a note to like a rock or a, a a piece of wood or something and would send it out onto a lake and you're sending the letters to heaven essentially. Um, and he wrote in that letter to his dad that he would take care of his brothers and that he would, you know, act as the dad figure. And he feels that he didn't hold up that end of the bargain. Um, so he'll often say like, I'm not proud of myself because I didn't do what I said I was going to do. Whereas no one expected the 13 year old to fill the fatherly figure. And if you talk to any of his brothers, I mean, especially one of his brothers, his brothers down here now, they love Disney. They're together all the time. They share so many hobbies. Um, You know, they adore him. And so it's just such a dichotomy from what is actually what his family feels about him. And it just, it breaks my heart because no matter how much we tell him, he has to believe that. And that is something that, you know, telling your inner child, like, I am proud of you. I struggle with that. It is weird. I'm like, this feels awkward. Um, <laughs> but it's important work for us to retrain our brains. It's, it's amazing how impactful our th- own thoughts can be. Yeah, I, I, I did a lot of inner child work. And it is really helpful. I, I do remember before actually doing it, being like, mm, this is, this was weird, little <laughs> yeah. Lori Lee. But when you really felt it and you really turned yourself inward, you're healing this part of you that you've carried for so long. Right. You know, I'm still doing that in different little ages that I experience certain traumas. I continuously try to heal that age for you as a wife as someone who's experienced such an immense trauma, has his trauma affected you? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not something I thought was possible until I had a conversation with um, a psychologist for this book or um, a therapist. Her name is uh, Stacy Boyer. And she actually worked with folks who were involved in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school shooting in Parkland, Florida. Mm-hmm. And she shared a story with me about how there was a child who actually heard another student retell their experience of b- being in the building that day. And this child wasn't even in the building. 
and she started developing PTSD. And I said, oh my goodness, this, this is real. Like I thought that I, I was always afraid of accepting that. I think that this could be happening to me because I would always say, well, this can't be because this is John's thing. This is what happened to my husband and his trauma is so much worse. So like, we can't worry about me and my, you know, me having an issue with it. But in reality, um, it's been very painful to hear these stories. And I've had to avoid um, 9-11 related content because I see it through such a different lens now. Um, it's not just a, a rubbernecking experience on the highway where I got to turn and look like I know that I lost my father-in-law, the grandfather to my future children, like won't know him. Like there are implications now. There's so many ripples from that one day um, that impact me so personally. And it's a really delicate tightrope to walk in general, because on one side, I do have that, you know, I, this is an American experience that I understand and appreciate versus I'm, I'm a wife. Um, and this is very personal for me. Um, so there's even times when we do go to the memorial and things like that, I feel like I'm having a bit of an out of body experience while I like, I, I need to be present with my husband who's in the, the resting place of his father, but yet you're standing around and you're seeing people like take selfies and pictures and mm. understanding that they're here at a monument to learn something. It's just, it's a very weird place for me to sit. Um, and I, I'm not sure I'm still very comfy in this space, but I'm learning to take my time with it. Even after the interviews, I'm like, you know what, I've just got to sit for a minute and feel what I have to feel and be thoughtful about what information I bring back to my husband too, because I don't want to re-trigger anything for him after sharing these interviews with him. Wow. Last year, I, I remember I interviewed one of the surviving children of 9-11, Matthew Bocci. And I posted on social media, kind of trying to promote the, the, the episode that was coming out. And I, and I did get some people who, who did lose somebody and they were like, this was very triggering. And I felt really bad because, you know, obviously, like you were saying, we look at it through a different lens. It's like, we all shared in this grief, but everyone's perspective is so different. Right. That was um, very eye-opening for me. Do you feel like there's, do you have any suggestions for people who are trying to memorialize or honor people through social media or just the event itself and, sure. and how we can avoid triggering? Yeah. I would, well, you're right. It is different for everyone. Um, there are certain things that trigger certain folks that don't trigger others. Um, I know from our personal experience, pictures of burning buildings, it's just not a good Don't do <laughs> good it. Um, don't do it. In general, with traumatic events or things of that nature, and I, I think through it, of my lens of infertility, right? It is so hard for me to see pregnancy announcements right now. I can do as much as I can to filter out, but at the end of the day, I'm still going to see them. I still have pregnant friends. I'm not going to ignore them all, but I think the ones that have resonated the most are 
those people who say, who celebrate their joy or celebrate whatever it is they're posting, but then also say, hey, for those who are seeing this, who are having this type of experience, I see you, I care, you know, please reach out if this is something that we need to talk about or that you're finding offensive. I'm not perfect. I'm trying to learn. And I think that's the lens I've taken with this book as well, because I did, I've, I'm having, um, I've had my, my stepmother-in-law like heavily read through the whole thing because I don't want a foot in mouth experience where I say something insensitive without me even knowing. But to your point, we sometimes don't know and we're all human. And I, and I think for the most part, everyone wants to give everybody a little bit of grace that they might not know. And you know, use that as an opportunity to educate or be open to being educated about something um, if we do cross those lines. Yeah. I mean, even as a, a sexual abuse survivor, I do recall talking to a sexual assault survivor and still saying the wrong things. Right. And, and, you know, I appreciated her saying, why is this question important? Because I find it mm. to be triggering. And I was like, wow, I didn't even realize that. And I, you know, so it is, it is a sensitive, it's very sensitive when you're talking about these, these topics of grief and abuse. And so, so it is difficult, but I do appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts there. Cause I think absolutely. that could absolutely be helpful for others. You know, you do talk about your, your, your infertility and how the last over the last year has been extremely difficult. And you are writing this book. <laughs> I mean, how did you how did you do it all? Um, how do you ever do it all, right? I, I don't think <laughs> anyone ever does it all. Um, there's certainly things I've had to sacrifice, and I think what's great is I I have um, a really great publishing team who uh, helps me stick to those deadlines, and mm. it certainly helps it to be able to say sorry, I can't, I have a deadline, right? I mean, it's not like I'm uh, trying to get out of anything. I really have this deadline. Um, and I'm a very deadline driven person. So that has worked for me, but it is really challenging. I'm working full time as well. Um, so wow. it, and my, my fertility clinic is an hour away. I, the way I've been trying to see it and it is, it's truly from a lot of these lessons. So it's sort of like, I needed to write this book at this period of my life um, because I don't think I would be able to get through it without what I've learned. Um, and one of the biggest insights I've heard from 9-11 surviving children is gratitude. And at first I was like, come on, like, you know, I'm not just going to wake up and be happy every day, you know, whatever, like this is hard stuff. And what I found is it's actually more of a practice and for me, it's spending time each morning thinking about at least three things that I'm grateful for. Even if it's like, if I can't think of anything, it's like, okay, I heard a bird chirping, you know, there's always something. And it's not that I ignore the bad things. And I think actually embracing what I'm grateful for has allowed me to also accept what I'm sad about and process that and, and then let go of it when it's time. But I'm like, you know what? I don't get to drive anymore. I work from home. I've got an hour commute and then an hour on the way back where I get to be by myself and, and just think about, you know, everything that I do have in my life. Um, and you know, all the things that are to come that, you know, the, the universe is going to send my way. 
I just, I set aside that dedicated writing time. I think that's been the biggest thing for me is making sure in the mornings that I have that time to write. And everybody in this house knows like, these are my writing hours. Do not bother me. I'm in my cozy (laughs) writing corner. And I think whenever we go through challenging times, it's helpful to remember the purpose in the pain or in the challenge. And so I know like I have to press through this writing this book because it's going to help so many people. I have to press through IUI, IVF, all the things because the end result is to get a child and it's going to be so worth it when we get there. Um, So keeping those end goals in mind have definitely helped me a lot. What were his thoughts of you starting this book? Your husband's thoughts, excuse me, and sharing his story. (laughs) It's funny. It was actually at like three in the morning, right after the 19th anniversary of 9-11, where I woke up and I was like, I think I have to write this. And I woke him up. I'm like, honey, honey, I think I need to write a book about 9-11. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Go to sleep. (laughs) Um, And the next morning I'm like, no, I really think I should write this book, but I... I need your blessing, right? I really need your whole family's blessing because I'm going to be exposing your story, right? For all the world to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, jokingly, he's like, well, I'm not going to write it. So if anyone's going to, it should be you. And I think he recognizes too that because I do sort of sit on that type rope, I'm able to see a bit more holistically than someone who's lived in it can see Mm -hmm. to look for those themes and those patterns. And, you know, I, I messaged his whole family about it as well. And they were, you know, so gracious and, and welcoming. I include more specifically in the book, my husband's story and his youngest brother. So I was really thrilled that um, one of them wanted to be interviewed because I didn't want to ask them. You know, mm-hmm. I had already felt like I asked so much to write the book. So for them to then say, you know, hey, I'd love to chat um, to be included more specifically in the book. It just really touched my heart. And, you know, I, I think they know my heart for the story. I'm, I might not get it right all the time, but I'm trying. And, um, you know, I, I think that definitely goes a long way. It takes a lot of courage for someone to want to share their story, especially right. on a big platform. Um, like a book, you know, for me, you know, sharing my story through this podcast and my magazine um, and giving other people a platform to tell their story was really therapeutic for me. It really like it really helped me in my journey, in my recovery. Uh, what did you discover about yourself in writing this book? I think what I learned the most is how much time it takes to walk through grief and that grief Mm. is not a straight line. I am so quick to just, you know, stuff it down and say like, I, I, you know, I need to be positive. Um, you know, I, I, I find myself smiling even when I tell people bad stuff that's happening to me. And so I'm like, I don't think anyone takes me serious. And, and then they're like, oh, well, you're just so positive. You're so, just so happy. I hear that so frequently. So that I was starting to put myself in that positivity box. Um, and really, that was just making me angrier when I wasn't <laughs> at work or whatever, because mm-hmm. you can't be one dimensional like that. Um, and what I saw is, you know, these people went through this over the past 20 years. Of course, they 
have more space around their grief, right? They've grown over 20 years around their grief. I am still in the middle of it. I cannot expect that same space and growth from myself. Mm-hmm. You know, they certainly didn't have that, you know, for themselves one to five years after. Um, and I would have loved, I think at the end to have had like a, a Buzzfeed type article, like five ways to heal your trauma, um, <laughs> but it's not that easy. Right. And recognizing for myself that it's going to take time and that is okay. And some days I will be feel fine. And then another day something might happen and I won't feel fine. And that doesn't mean that I'm going backwards. It just means that, you know, it's sort of like a spiral staircase. We're just going to keep spinning around and um, it'll never go away. But like I said, you, you grow around it. And so um, learning that patience and grace for myself and uh, trust me, I'm not perfect at it, but um, I feel that it's grown exponentially over the course of these interviews. Something my husband told me when I was in treatment, because even though everyone told me that, you know, recovery is not a straight line, I, I guess I was just naive. And when I would have a bad day, I'm like, oh my gosh, I failed. Right. You know, and my husband said to me, you lived with this grief for 20 something years. It's not going to go away in three days in recognizing that I felt like the pressure was off because I think there was so much pressure for me to be okay again. We all like to check a box, right? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, done. I checked that off the list. That task is complete. That's right. not really how grief works. <laughs> mm. um, and, you know, I totally resonate with the the failure piece there too, because I think that was at the center of a lot and continues to be at the center of a lot of my challenges with infertility is that it does feel like a failure every single month. Like, you know, my cycle starting, it's like a big fat F on the report card, mm-hmm. um, which goes back to the inner child of why do I have to, ha- first of all, why do I have to have an A all the time? You know, who am I trying to impress? Mm-hmm. And why am I judging my worth on my ability to get pregnant or my ability to perform or produce? Right. Um, and, you know, it, that, it's always worked for me. Right. I, I did get good grades. I, um, you know, I like to think I've got a good job and I work hard. And so all those things have been sort of counterintuitive in the pregnancy process, um, that have really made me stop and say, that is not what my worth is. You know, I am, I'm loved just because I exist, not because I did anything at all. We're Mm -hmm. human beings, not human doings. And that's something I have to remind myself of constantly. I mean, that's, that's incredible thinking about what you're grateful for, you know, like you're talking about the gratitude doing that daily is, is everything it's hard, but I'm so inspired by you and I support you. And I, I'm, I think it's amazing what you're doing for so many people who have dealt with grief. And I know that you've interviewed how many stories are in your book? We've got about um, 15 or so stories in the book. Mm. Um, some of are which from family units. So multiple children in the family. Um, mm. And interestingly enough, and, you know, it's interesting because I, I want to be very careful about how I went about the interviews. Um, every story in the book 
are from people who lost fathers. Um, and the ratio actually for um, victims of 9-11 was three to one of um, men versus women. So um, that I have spoken and started speaking to folks who lost mothers, but I think hearing from people who lost fathers tells such an interesting story about the women they left behind, the mothers who were left to pick up the pieces. Mm -hmm. And the most resilient 9-11 surviving children I've spoken to are resilient because they had incredible mothers who were truly the hidden heroes and kept everything together. Um, It's amazing when I think about the things that my stepmother-in-law and mother-in-law did and to hear that reflected and appreciated in the children of others. Um, because, you know, you have kids, you're like, will they ever appreciate me? They're like <laughs> acting, you know, whatever. And yeah. I just hope that they get to read these stories and see, you know, it wasn't all for naught. You know, they, they, their hard work um, was well done and made a big difference in these now adults' lives. Wow. I bet it was amazing to see that like see how these stories evolved. And, and I think that's amazing that, that it was these mothers, because you don't really think about that. The mothers who had to pick up the pieces, who had to rebuild the family and, and, and support them as both, you know, a mother and a father and someone who's also grieving as, as well. Right. I mean, they were going through their own stuff and a lot of them had to suppress or however they, they got through it. I don't know. I mean, it's amazing, but we, we know there is research there to show keeping people in their routines or getting them back to the routines does help with the recovery process. And so for them to recognize, I have to do this for my child. Um, but again, I think there is that purpose piece there, right? Knowing I have to do this for my child helped them also to recover. So it's this sort of symbiotic relationship, I think, between parent, uh, mother and child um, that really helped them through the past 20 years. Mm. Was there a story that stood out to you? So many. Um, I will I will share one from um, her name is Nicole Foster. And she was five at the time of 9-11. Um, her, her dad did work at Cantor Fitzgerald, which I believe is the same place that um, Matt uh, Bocci's father worked at. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so young at the time, very limited memories of, of, her, of her father. Um, but then actually, you know, you think you've had enough. You think you've already been through the toughest thing in your life. And then at 15, uh, it was actually her 15th birthday, she was diagnosed with leukemia. Mm. So I just, (laughs) talking to her, I'm like, come on, like how many, how many things could happen to this person, right? I asked her, I'm like, were you ever mad, you know, that this happened? And she, frankly, she's like, I didn't have time to be mad. You know, I, I only had enough energy to focus on the here and now and what I was going to do to get through the next day and the next day and the next day as they came. And so, you know, she, she just, just, I can't imagine being 15 laying in a hospital bed. And she was said that she would just tell herself, you know, 
my dad is watching over me. My dad is here for me. He's making things align so that I have the right doctors and the right support to get through this. I trust that these doctors will get me through this. And I think what you didn't realize then was that this whole mind, body, spirit approach, you know, having that, that wheel, right, of all of these different connections can really be impactful in recovery. And I think what's so amazing now, I mean, she's recovered from cancer, uh, thank goodness. And she now um, is, she works with a Calm app. So she does, oh, wow. you know, help people through their own challenges. And she's um, a, like a holistic health coach as well as she's seen just how the benefits of that type of thinking, taking care of your body, nutrition, all of that has played out in her own life. And, you know, I think that's just a perfect example of how I've seen many 9-11 surviving children go into service industries and service type roles because there is that empathy piece there that they want to give back. They live through it themselves. And so they want to help others through it. And, and so I think of her all the time because I just think she's just a, such a strong person and I can't wait to see what else she does. Right. Because, you know, only five at the time, you know, she's like around 25, 26. Now there's mm. so much opportunity left for her. I feel like this book needs like a sequel in another 20 <laughs> years. <laughs> You're right. There you go. I think, I think with a lot of people who've dealt with grief and trauma, what's helped, you know, me and, and, you know, I, I interviewed trauma survivors all the time. And I think it's, it's finding that purpose to help others. And, you know, and this is your purpose. And and, I mean, it, it sets you on fire. It's, it's what kind of helps you move through your days when your days are not that great because yeah. we all have those days. Yeah. And I think they'd all rather have their parents back, right? I, mm. I would much rather have a baby than have to tell this story, but you know, you're totally right. I, the amount of people I have heard from once I started opening up about our infertility journey oh my goodness, like so empowering to hear from people who are like me too. Mm -hmm. When at first I thought I was so alone, like people don't talk about this. And to hear them say, you know, thank you for showing this because it's given me a space to feel like I can talk about this and be more honest about it and just know that there's other people out there. And so I think there's so much power in sharing our stories um, and you just never know where you're going to meet that next person and where they're at in their portion of their journey and how you're going to come in and influence them and help them. Yeah. What is your hope in writing this book? My hope is that we can walk away from this and see the opportunity for greater empathy in our lives. Um, I think, you know, 9-11 is, is, is the big draw, right? Everybody wants to know about 9-11. And so um, it's an, I don't want to say exciting topic because it's not that, but you know, it, it draws people's interest for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's the deeper connecting stories within that connect us all, right? You know, maybe you didn't lose a parent in 9-11, but you probably dealt with something crappy in your life before. And so if we're able to 
become more empathetic through hearing other stories, which I think, you know, understanding and trying to walk in other shoes is a big piece of empathy. But to take it a step beyond that, my biggest call to action is how might we get better or at least any empathy training in our schools as well as in our workplace? Because there are just too many times where I have heard of disastrous things from, you know, no return to work plans for people who go through a traumatic event or, you know, not feeling that you can bring your authentic self to work and sharing what's going on. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine if I couldn't tell my boss about all my appointments that I have and like what I'm going through, or if I couldn't turn my camera off at work, I mean, that would just be devastating. And I know that's a reality for a lot of people um, who don't feel open to speak. And so I, I hope that, you know, this is, this book is just the jumping off point, the catalyst to something larger where we might be able to really get people um, the training that's needed. Um, because 9-11 surviving children, they are an amazing group of people, but they're not superheroes. And the skills and traits that they've learned to get through their grief are accessible for all of us. Mm. Um, if we just take the time to practice uh, these things. Yeah. A portion of the proceeds will go to Tuesday's Children. Could you tell me about Tuesday's Children and why you chose to give some of the proceeds to this organization? Absolutely. And I'm so happy to share that um, in the pre-sale campaign, we were actually able to donate $4,000 to Tuesday's Children, um, which was just incredible. Um, But Tuesday's Children, they have been a huge proponent in my husband and his family's lives since 9-11. They originally were started as an organization to support the families um, of the victims of 9-11 and have turned into something much bigger than that, um, where it used to be, you know, how do we get the support for wives, whether that's through certain groups or um, camps and access to things of that nature, that's really where it started. And now um, they're so involved in job training, um, helping students uh, or the children of 9-11 find internships, you know, meeting them at their stage of life where they're at now, and then expanding now to support other folks who are impacted by war violence, um, mass shootings, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So um, they've come a long way as an organization and, um, I I just know that a lot of my husband's development and ability to recover has come from the team over there. So um, when I first started to write the book, I reached out to my stepmother-in-law and said, who, where do I even start with this? Like, do you know people that would even be interested in sharing? How do I breach this conversation? And she said, talk to Tuesday's children. And um, once they heard my story and what I was trying to share, they put out a a giant newsletter to all of the folks who they've supported in the past, um, asking them if they would be interested in sharing for the book. And so most of the folks who I interviewed, I interviewed because of the connections through Tuesday's children. So um, they are, have been immensely invested and helpful through this entire process. And I, I know, unfortunately, there will be new families that they will have to support um, because I'd be naive to say that, you know, these sort of things will not continue to happen. But 
to know that they are there to do that and that we could just be a little piece of that. I'm, I'm really grateful for it. Wow. Well, we're all grateful for you and, you know, your husband sharing his story. And I, I think this is, this is amazing. What will you guys be doing for the 20th anniversary of 9-11? You know, we're, we're still undecided and I'm very careful to push the subject um, because I want to be respectful of that. It's a big one. I think we're all sort of feeling that. And I think that's where the hesitancy comes from mm -hmm. of what to plan. But I know in past years, my husband lo just loves to do something fun. I mean, he knows that that's the best way to honor his dad. His dad was a ton of fun. And if there's a way for us to be either together with the family or, you know, do a FaceTime call with the family, that's a good way to do it. I can tell you what we won't be doing and it's being on social media or connected to our phones because, you know, even, even the texts that come in that day as, as appreciated as they are, it's overwhelming. I think for him to receive all of that feedback at one time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we just, we just step away. We do something fun in his memory and, um, and uh, spend it with family where we can. So most likely looking forward to that this year as well. Mm, beautiful. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think if there's anyone out here who is going through a challenging time, um, I would just want to tell them, keep going. And I know that is such a hard thing to hear um, when you're in the middle of a challenging time, but we have to sort of walk through the fire sometimes to come out to the other side and the most beautiful things come out of the fire when they do right phoenixes rise from ashes um and i think we'd all agree we, we could do without the fire but it's sometimes a necessary part of the process um and you will be so much stronger and better for it so just keep going you are very much seen loved and cared for and wanted um and so you know just keep on walking one foot in front of the other. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so grateful. Thank you. This was, I really enjoyed our conversation um, and appreciate your time. That was Peyton Lynch, author of Rise from the Ashes, Stories of Trauma, Resilience, and Growth from the Children of 9-11. To learn more about Peyton, please visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's letter A, tstpodcast.com. There you can find the link to purchase her book. You can also find my social media platforms at the top of my homepage. And don't forget to subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider Magazine in your inbox monthly. Thank you so much for listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. Take care. Yeah.